Hello, and welcome back to the Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zayd Wahab, and today we will take our first steps into the reign of Jafar ibn Muhammad al-Mu'tasib. His ascension was improvised by the six senior most members of his brother's court and their fathers before him. After al-Wathiq's sudden demise, these long-time administrators found his son to be too young for the role, and they decided to pledge to his brother Jafar instead. They probably thought he would stay out of their way, perhaps even show some appreciation. But the tension of having been made king by actual kingmakers didn't sit well with the new caliph, and it was the first thing he moved to address. Episode 64 Executive Terminations I'm not sure I've emphasized this enough, but the Abbasid Caliphate entered a sort of golden age following the Great Fitna. Al-Ma'mun's return to Baghdad in 820 restored order to Iraq. His successful administration brought peace and prosperity, advantages the philosophically inclined Caliph leveraged to spark an intellectual renaissance that would endure for centuries he struggled to regain control of some challenging geographies, but his brother, Al-Mu'tasim, who became caliph in 833, did not. Al-Mu'tasim's professional armies swept away all of the state's enemies and ushered in an era of battlefield dominance. He empowered his coterie of generals and advisors to rule over the entire caliphate, and their unchallenged authority ensured a smooth transition when the time came for his son Al-Wathiq to succeed him in 841. Junior's reign went by so uneventfully that it barely left an impression in our histories. Five straight years of smooth sailing, ending in late 846. It sounds pretty good when I put it like that, but the truth is of course a lot more complicated. Although there were some undeniable improvements in the economic, intellectual, and military spheres, there were several serious threats to the Ummah's cohesion. All three caliphs since the fitna had alienated their subjects. Al-Ma'mun, with his fondness for the Hashemites, Al-Mu'tasim, his over-reliance on the Turks, and Al-Wathiq, with his fanatical pursuit of the Mu'tazilite Inquisition. The Arabs and Arabized Khorasaniyya were so aggrieved that they had led a failed coup against Al-Mu'tasim in 838. Their subsequent purge from the armed forces homogenized the caliph's armies, leaving leadership entirely in the hands of the Turks. This concentration of military power had decisive political implications, as evidenced by the signal role these men played in Jafar's ascension. I realize this intro is already pretty long, but it's important we understand the developing paradigm shift. The caliphate had gone through several phases before. What started out as a community united by a new faith evolved into an Arab tribal confederation, then a multi-ethnic Islamic society. The significance of al reign wasn't that he was particularly martial. 
It's that he invested his inner circle with so much power that they managed to run the state independently after his passing, something they proved during his son's tenure. Here's the rub. During the first three phases I roughly sketched out, the success or failure of an administration depended greatly on the caliph's character and suitability for the role. This was no longer the case. A military bureaucracy now ran things. It delivered victories, glory, and security, which gave it all the legitimacy it needed to rule over the ummah. As things stood, the best caliph was the one who could facilitate the needs of his administrators, or someone aloof, like al-Wathiq, who kept out of their way. Jafar al-Mutawakkil will turn out to be nothing like his brother and predecessor. We'll take our time covering the details of his reign, because, partly despite it, partly due to it, its aftermath will be messy. Many commentaries point to his succession as the beginning of the end, while others disagree and say that the end was already in full swing. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's take a deep breath and start where we always do. Jafar was born in 822 to a concubine from Khwarezm in northern Khurasan, between modern-day Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan. Someone from there would have been known as a Khawarizmi, and a Baghdadi resident and polymath with that epithet wrote several world-altering mathematical treaties during Al-Ma'mun's time, many of which had a lasting impact on human knowledge. A book on Indian numerals popularized their use among the Arabs, and another introduced the concept of al-Jabr, or algebra. One of the forces that run our modern lives, the algorithm, derives its name from his, as he explored how iterating mathematical operations can yield interesting results. Guarismo, another derivative of al-Khawarizmi, also means numeral or digit in modern Spanish and Portuguese. Most of this legendary scholarship took place under the generous patronage of Al-Ma'mun. None of this is related to our subject today, but I'm sure you'll agree that such a spectacular legacy is interesting to learn about all the same. Back to Jafar. As with his brother, we don't really find any material on his upbringing. We know he had a son at the age of 14, and that he led the Hajj in 841, the year Al-Wathiq took the throne. We also hear about two close friends he grew up with, both the sons of a Turk named Khaqan, who worked for his dad. Unfortunately, Jafar's three closest advisors later on will all have similar names, Al-Fatih ibn Khaqan, Muzahim ibn Khaqan, and Ubaidullah ibn Yahya ibn Khaqan, who was of no relation. It's a headache we'll skirt by using their first names only, but it does get confusing if you're reading the primary material. Al-Tabari says that Jafar adopted Fatih and Muzahim when he was seven years old, which makes no sense for various reasons, not least of which that they were slightly older than him. His father must have allowed the pair to grow up in Jafar's harem, which probably gave rise to this perception. Apart from that, the only stories we come across are about how Jafar was mistreated during his brother's reign, between the ages of 20 and 25. Some of these narrations are so emotionally charged that they seem made up. 
perhaps to cast his impending persecution of several powerful administrators as having been driven by revenge. The wildest story is the one about the treasurer Muhammad ibn Zayyat, who was the first to suffer the new caliph's wrath. It's the easiest to dismiss, but also the most entertaining, so listen and judge for yourself. It says that one night during Al-Wathiq's reign, Jafar had a dream. It contained several favorable omens that hinted he would one day become caliph. He told some of his close attendants about it, and word eventually got round to the caliph, who considered such talk impertinent, verging on treason. Al-Wathiq made his displeasure known, and even assigned two members of his court to spy on his brother and report back. Jafar was understandably distressed at these developments, and for some reason he decided that the man to speak to about them was the infamously disagreeable treasurer come vizier Ibn Zayyat. When he got to his office, Jafar was asked to sit quietly while the all-powerful administrator went about his business. After he'd kept him waiting for a while, Ibn Zayyat brusquely asked Jafar what he wanted in front of a bunch of unnamed officials. When the Abbasid said he was hoping Ibn Zayyad could help smooth things over between him and the caliph, the treasurer loudly mocked him in front of everyone there, saying, What a farce! He angers his brother and comes to me for aid. Mend your ways if you seek your brother's favor. Although Jafar left more dejected than he had arrived, his humiliation was only beginning. Ibn Zayyat penned a letter to the caliph about the visit, telling him Jafar had come to see him dressed like a sissy, with the long black hair of a woman to match. The cruel al-Wathiq thus summoned his brother to court, an invitation Jafar tragically misread as a positive sign, and he excitedly put on his finest robes for the occasion. When he got there, the caliph ordered a man to shear off Jafar's hair and to strike his face with it in front of everyone all while Al-Wathiq heaped on one insult after another. This narration is attributed to Jafar himself, who concludes by saying that he never in his life experienced a darker or more shameful day. My problem with this story isn't that it's outlandish. It's that if it were true, how could Ibn Zayyat ever agree to nominate Jafar to begin with? We do find some commentaries that say that the cocky treasurer was just too assured of his own power, and others that claim the Turks strategically pushed for Jafar in order to get rid of Ibn Zayyat. I'm going to make an executive decision here, and keep us away from this sort of speculation. There simply isn't enough material to prove any of these claims. Let's just look the other way and say that Al-Mutawakkil held secret grudges and finally found himself in a position to do something about them. Instead of delving right into Ibn Zayyad's punishment, let's keep him waiting like he did to Jafar all those years ago. We already discussed Jafar's ascension in detail last time, but a reminder never hurts. The six men who elected him over his 13-year-old nephew were Wasif, Itakh, Ahmad ibn Abi Dawood, Muhammad ibn Zayyat, and two secretaries whose names I didn't want to confuse you with last time. Wasif was the one who first objected to Al-Wathiq's young son, and Ibn Abi Dawood the one who nominated Jafar. 
when they finally agreed upon him, they summoned him and congratulated him, saying his new title would be Al-Muntasir. He thanked them for their support, but said he wanted to be Al-Mutawakkil ala Allah, the title he saw in that auspicious dream he had during his brother's reign. The name means he who relies on God. Literally the first thing Al-Mutawakkil did was plot to get rid of Ibn Zayyat. He didn't just want to fire him, he wanted to catch him by surprise and really make him suffer, and he tasked Itah with arranging the whole affair. The general sent a letter asking the vizier to meet him at his house so the pair could go see the caliph jointly. Ibn Zayyat obliged after lunch, but when he got there soldiers arrested him and led him to a dungeon, while others were sent to raid his house. We find many gruesome stories about torture during al-Mutawakkil's reign, a sad development, probably due to the military control over all aspects of administration. The two most common tortures I came across were putting people in ovens and driving nails through their shoulder blades. Ibn Zayyat was tortured to death, and all his possessions were expropriated. We hear that his house was surprisingly humble, and that he, only, had 90,000 dinars stashed away, so about 400 kilograms of gold. His son was also similarly abused and yielded a million and a half dirham, which, at an exchange rate of about 20 dirham per dinar, worked out to being worth a little less. Thus it was that the first of the six powerful administrators who ran the state lost everything. If you're thinking, hold on, you said Ibn Zayyat was indispensable because he was so good at his job. Then you're right, and the caliph struggled to find someone to fill his position. Over the next couple of years, he went through two other treasurers, at least one of whom was also tortured and dispossessed, before he finally settled on Ubaidullah ibn Khaqan, who ruled as vizier for the rest of al-Mutawakkil's long reign. The caliph's next target was Omar ibn Faraj, one of the secretaries from the council that chose him. Not only was Omar one of the two men al-Wathiq had assigned to report on Jafar a few years back, but he was also responsible for giving him his allowance. It seems like Omar abused his position by charging the would-be caliph 50 dinars for every withdrawal. After Jafar's disgrace at his brother's court, Omar would often ignore his pleas for his stipend altogether. The impudent secretary is said to have once tossed it into a beggar's bowl at the mosque to make the Abbasid fish it out in front of everyone. Sounds somewhat exaggerated to me, but again, let's just go with it. Omar was nowhere near as powerful as Ibn Zayyat had been, so five months into his reign, the caliph just ordered he be arrested. His dispossession yielded a whopping 1.3 tons of gold, and like the treasurer before him, he expired under duress. That's two down, four to go. Well, three actually. One of the six will survive. Have fun trying to guess who it will be. Here's a hint. It wasn't the other unnamed secretary, because he was taken out during al-Mutawakkil's first year as well. Like Omar, this guy was an easy kill, and about half a ton of gold was expropriated from him by the state. The three men still standing were the generals Itah and Wasif, and the chief judge Ahmad ibn Abi Dawood. 
it was quite a swift and violent shake-up by the new caliph. He also replaced numerous other officials, showing just how deeply he distrusted the sitting administration. The only one Al-Mutawakkil had demonstrated any faith in was Itah, when he tasked him with eliminating Ibn Zayyat. Itah benefited from the wazir's demise. See, Ibn Zayyat held quite a grip on official authority, and following his death, his many responsibilities were distributed among a number of other administrators. Itah got plenty of the more prestigious positions, and by late 847 he had become the hajib, head of the caliph's personal guard, and head of intelligence. This was on top of his regular position, which was a superintendent of half the caliphate. Egypt, Greater Syria, Yemen's parts of the north, and Sindh. Considering all the hats he got to wear, Itach was arguably the most powerful man in the caliphate. The narration about Itach's falling out with al-Mutawakkil is kind of strange. All it says is that one night, early in his reign, al-Mutawakkil got into a drunken row with Itach, who in his rage came close to killing the caliph. When informed about his behavior the next morning, Al-Mutawakkil apologized and told Itach that he held him in the regard of a father who had raised him. The very next sentence tells us that the caliph immediately began scheming to get rid of the Khazar who had served his family so faithfully all these years. In 848, Al-Mutawakkil granted Itach the honor of attending the pilgrimage. This was a great boon, because it meant that Itach would be celebrated at every stop, like Ashinas had been a few years back. He transferred his duties to Wasif, took a host of his men, and began his long journey to Mecca. As he was making his way back in 849, Itach received a letter stating that the caliph wanted him to stop in Baghdad first. It said that the Abbasids and other dignitaries wanted to pay him their respects at Khazim ibn Khuzayma's old palace in the city. While this struck Itach as unusual, he wasn't too worried as he still had 300 of his soldiers accompanying him. When he got to the palace, the drawbridge was suddenly lifted with only three or four of his men by his side. He was then forced into a boat and taken to a different location, where his torture commenced. Instead of narrations drooling over his net worth, we find some disparate accounts about how he met his end. Twas either dehydration, starvation, or the spinal damage from being forced to stand with an 80-pound shackle chained to his neck. The entire affair was orchestrated by the Tahirid governor of Baghdad, Ishaq ibn Ibrahim, at the command of the caliph, of course. Ishaq had been serving the Abbasids loyally since he was appointed to the position in 822, and he would continue in it until his death the next year in 850. Highlights of his career include interrogating the first judges and scholars about their beliefs, overseeing Al-Afshin's trial for attempting to subvert Islam and the Ummah, and now the elimination of Itakh. He was succeeded by his son, who passed away suddenly in 851, then another son who failed miserably. As per Al-Ma'mun's original arrangement, the position of governor of Baghdad had to be filled by a Tahirid, as it was the governor of Khurasan who paid for its troops. 
That same year, Abdullah ibn Tahir, the governor of Khurasan, sent his own son, Muhammad, to govern Baghdad. He did well and held the role for the remainder of Al-Mutawakkil's reign and beyond. We are down to the final pair, Ahmad ibn Abi Dawood and Wasif, only one of whom will survive the caliph's wrath. If you thought that man was the chief judge, then you can join me in being wrong. There were three reasons I figured he'd make it, only one of which I've mentioned previously. Ibn Abi Dawood was the first one to nominate Jafar when the six administrators were trying to decide who to pledge to. Beyond that, Jafar turned to Ibn Abi Dawood after his mortifying incident at Al-Watiq's court, and the chief judge persuaded the caliph to let up on his brother. Finally, Ibn Abi Dawood wasn't even serving anymore. Due to some medical issues, he had retired and given his position to his son Muhammad one year into Al-Mutawakkil's reign. I think these are all great reasons to spare someone, but the caliph had already made up his mind. We'll discuss his religious beliefs in another episode. For now, it'll suffice to note that Al-Mutawakkil was strongly against Mu'tazilism. The ideology championed by the Inquisition, Ibn Abi Dawood had spearheaded. He and his sons were arrested and dispossessed in 852, yielding 40,000 gold dinar and 16 million silver dirham, after which they perished in the caliph's dungeons. So, our winner is Wasif, and his prize is the dearest of all, life itself. Some commentaries say that Al-Mutawakkil left him in charge because he was the one who had objected to pledging to Al-Wathiq's young son. That kind of appreciation seems far-fetched to me. The caliph worked tirelessly to reduce the influence of his father's old guard, but he could only go so far. He needed to keep many of their leaders around, and honestly it's a wonder he even managed to get rid of Itah. Wasif wasn't the only one left, but he was the most prominent. Both Big and Little Bukha were still around, and they'll play a more significant role from here on out. Al-Mutawakkil didn't like it one bit, but there was simply no alternative to the Turks on the battlefield. This is a good point to stop our narrative and reflect on what we've covered. It's best to take Al-Mutawakkil's eventful reign in small doses, because he shook things up on multiple fronts. We'll need to discuss the impact his religious policies had on the state and society, his complicated relationship with the military, and his unfortunate succession arrangement, all in considerable detail. It's important to establish a good grasp of these topics, as they provide the requisite context for understanding the disastrous decade that followed his reign. He'll be our last significant caliph for a while, so enjoy it while it lasts. The fact that Al-Mutawakkil took out three members of the old guard in his first year speaks volumes. I'm not sure what to think about all the accounts we came across that say he was motivated by revenge. There's too many of them to ignore, so I don't doubt that he had an axe or two to grind. But at the same time, I think it's safe to say that he had a larger plan in mind. 
Al-Mutawakkil sought to replace the entire administration with men of his own choosing. Otherwise, why would he take out Itakh and Ahmad ibn Abi Dawood? He held no grudges against those two. The obvious reason is because they were a threat to the authority of his office. They didn't just precede him as statesmen. They chose him. He wouldn't even be there if it wasn't for them. His first victim, Muhammad ibn Zayyat, had served the Abbasids as treasurer and vizier for over a dozen years. And despite his ordinary attitude, I'm certain he would have complied with the new caliph's every command. None of that mattered, though. Having made himself the indispensable administrator, ironically, meant that he simply had to be taken out. Most commentaries agree that al-Mutawakkil actively worked at undermining the power of these men, all of whom he regarded as threats. What they argue about is whether it was already way too late. Some say that al-Mutasim's administrative changes had ruined things irredeemably, while others point to al-Ma'mun's victory over his brother as the primary cause of this unstoppable decline. Let's try to explain both points of view. One unfortunate repercussion of the Great Fitna was that the Abbasids no longer retained any connection to the court or wider administration. Al-Ma'mun never managed to mend his relationship with the clan. Al-Mu'tasim was too engrossed with his troops to bother with anyone else, and Al-Wathiq was barely there at all. Traditionally, caliphs used their clan to extend their support networks. Relatives would be placed in positions of authority across the caliphate where they acted as a sort of link back to the court. They would build ties with local powers, especially through marriage, and in doing so would ensure that these groups had a stake in the status quo. Now that the administration had been thoroughly centralized and run exclusively by the caliph's inner circle, there was no longer any room for those Abbasid governors, nor the provincial support they had once brought. From here on out, the only force ensuring the caliphate's cohesion was the strength of its armies and the compliance they inspired in the ummah. There's another, more insidious way the obsolescence of the Abbasid clan undermined the caliphate's stability. Restricting all authority to a few trusted loyalists meant that nobody else gained that valuable experience. Whoever came to the throne from here on out had never held an analogous position and possessed little idea of what the role actually required. Al-Mu'tasim was allowed to rule over parts of Syria during his brother's reign, but neither one of the two sons who succeeded him were ever invested with real authority. The members of his inner circle were the only ones he trusted with actual control, and while it worked out for him, the hyper-centralized setup pooled way too much power in one place. A handful of men now ran the state, somewhat like a board would run a company. As outsiders who had very few links to local communities, they were unencumbered by ethnic or religious loyalties. Their job was simple to take care of the troops and keep the armies strong. Since the top generals were also super-governors who oversaw multiple provinces, they had full visibility and control of the tax revenue required, 
All they had to do was maintain or grow it. So basically, Al-Mu'tasim had corporatized the caliphate and made his own position merely symbolic. The Ummah would accept their new masters as long as they had a Abbasid figurehead to bless the whole charade. But we shouldn't underestimate the psychological effect of suddenly having an undefeated military. The citizens of the Caliphate must have felt like the Americans at the end of World War II or after the fall of communism, like a global superpower whose set of beliefs had proven its primacy over all other competitors. Its invincibility had a mandate-of-heaven-type effect on the military, which went a long way towards legitimizing the Turks. Despite the caliph's many attempts at reorganizing the administration, he had no choice but to acknowledge the irreplaceability of these armies, and he never went further than his assassination of Itach, which, again, was an impressive feat in and of itself. These explanations are both convincing, but they minimize something I think is quite important. The caliph still held supreme authority. Al-Mutawakkil proved that by taking out half of the council that elected him in his first year alone. For all their importance, the generals and bureaucrats understood themselves to be serving only at his pleasure. They competed for his favor and approval, and we come across no suggestion of disobedience on their part, Al-Mutawakkil may have been surrounded by powerful men, but his authority was completely uncontested. Let's explore what he did with it together in a month, after Ramadan is over, here on The Caliphs, The Rise and Fall of Arab Power.